I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of the Appendix N Book Club. I'm Jeff, and with me today is my co-interviewer, Hoy. Hello. And we have a very special guest with us today. We have Tim Kask, a co-author, co-creator of the Appendix N. I'm not quite sure how we should state that. Uh, Co-contributor. Co-contributor. I like it. Co-compiler. Gary and I compiled that. Perfect. Perfect. Founding editor of Dragon Magazine, uh, editor of many of the original OD&D supplements from Blackmore onwards. Is that correct? Correct. Right. And also Adventure Gaming Magazine and Gygax Magazine. Gygax Magazine. Right. I have a... I have, a, I have a history of failed magazines <laughs> behind me. Well, I think um, that you led the way for so many people, so I think that's important. Oh, yeah. We had a good time while we were doing it, no doubt. Okay. And since this is streaming on Twitch, if anybody is watching the stream and would like to toss any questions our way, our way, let us know, and we'll go ahead and try to work those into the show. So, Tim, I would love to start by asking you, is the idea of two grown men spending 10 years of their life uh, doing an, a, a, a podcast on the appendix and uh, how ridiculous is that on a scale of one to 10? Two. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, cool. Because so you don't think it's utterly ridiculous for us to be doing this? No, I don't believe any pursuit of something that genuinely fascinates you and intrigues you and engages you. I, I don't believe that's a waste. Mm-hmm. Not, I, I don't. Um, if only, only when it gets in the way of what we in the game industry used to call the real world. Right. <laughs> sure. Real, <laughs> and now it's called RL, real life. Right. Um, uh-huh. But uh, no, I mean, good grief! I've been playing war games since I was in the sixth grade, and I still <laughs> do. <laughs> you know, so yeah, you know th- that's going on f- uh, a lot of years <laughs> and over fifty. So, um, yeah, geez, close to sixty. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, almost sixty years. I've been playing war games. So, um, and I've been critic, critic, criticizing them, critiquing them, modifying them, editing them for some people. Um, so, no, I, I don't think ten years on Appendix N is. I think scholars could spend 10 years writing theses about the effects and the influences of appendix N. So, yeah, yeah. Sure. only so a two, now, only a two, <laughs> only two in, a, yeah. in as much as any personal obsession is a little bit absurd. So, well, it, yeah, it, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> everything, everything's at least a one. Right. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, in, in terms of waste or frivolity, um, no, I don't think it's frivolous. I mean, if people can spend their lives trying to decipher a new uh, translation of Chaucer. Sure. Right. No. And and so, Tim, I think people, you mentioned war games. People, you know, in the old school scene know you as, you know, the sort of one of the preeminent figures in the early history of Dungeons and Dragons. But your first I know, one that's is, the irony. Right. That's is, the irony. Is, is board games and war games, right? I mean, certainly from watching your show. That's well, what's boards, boards and minis. Um, yeah. I was way into boards and minis well before I met Gary. 
mm-hmm. um, part of my uh, job interview <laughs> consisted of they looked in the cardboard box I was lugging around and saw I had a trophy for all three events of miniatures that I had entered. I won all three of them. And they said, hey, okay, he knows what he's doing. There you go. So I didn't realize it, but that ticked off a box. Mm-hmm. I was told later. Now, what were some of the other, uh, you, you seem to have been a pretty voracious reader, more history, or were you reading fiction as a younger, as a younger child and young man? Well, um, I went through a phase of, of several years where I, I, I devoured the entire section of nonfiction military history in our uh, public library. I, I, re- I literally read every book. I just, I had this fascination. So I became a student of military history at a very young age. And um, I, I was sick. Must have been about 12 or 13. I was sick. And so my mom had gone to the bookmobile or to the library and brought me back a book she thought I might like because it had the word troopers mm-hmm. in the title. Uh, the other word was starship. There you go. And so that was my initial exposure. And it was like, wow, this stuff's pretty cool. And so um, I veered off into reading Heinlein and, and, and all the all the greats of the 50s and the 60s, because uh, that's when I was growing up, mm-hmm. and um, Asimov, and I, I devoured that. And then some fiction, uh, for a while I was reading popular fiction, you know, like when The Godfather was out, I read The guy, sure. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, again, <laughs> again, I was sick. There, there's, just, there's, a, there's something here. Uh, I, I, was, I was in the Navy, stationed in Memphis, and a bunch of us had gotten some kind of flu or whatever. And so we'd saved up all our turpenhydrate little bottles of it. Because if you drank three or four of them, you could get an amazing buzz. <laughs> half drunk, half stoned. I'm not sure. Well, it was codeine and alcohol. So go. Go, go figure. And somebody had given me some paperbacks. It was a tradition in, in uh, the training commands that when you were shipping out, if you had paperbacks that you'd read, you'd offer them around in your cubicle or in your wing, you know, or whatever. Hey, anybody want some books to read? And so it was a, a collection of Robert E. Howard short stories and The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'd read both of them in a weekend, uh, <laughs> buzzed out of my brain on Turpin Hydrate, and, which was legal, and um, was introduced to Swords and Sorcery and Tolkien in the same weekend. Mm-hmm. And so my reading veered again. And so, you know, some of it I came to r- relatively late in life. Uh, I certainly, compared to today, I came to role-playing late in life. I mean, I was a college graduate and I had spent four years in the Navy by the time I went to TSR in 75. Right. And you started your family at that point. You know, and I was tw- like 25 when I was in my first time playing at the first Gen Con. I was like 25. Mm-hmm. Sitting around the table with a bunch of fourteen and fifteen year olds, feeling very out of place with my long hair and, and my handlebar and my mutton chops, uh, I was very much the hippie. Mm-hmm. And um, with all the other pop culture that was going on, again, you were growing up in the fifties. Were you watching a lot of sort of the science, the golden age of science fiction movies that were going on at that time, or anything like that? No, or? I I despised. Um, Rodan and and, the, and the, the cheesy black and white Japanese uh, horror movies, which is the fair that we had. I did enjoy uh, the Harryhausen movies, mm-hmm. but they were 
retellings of a story or they were, you know, semi-historical, I would go, I would spend my quarter on Saturday afternoon, let me show you how long ago it was, when the, what was what's now called sword and sandals movies, you know, the Hercules movies, uh, the Hannibal movies, that's what I went to the movies to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted I wanted spectacle. I wanted hacking and slashing. And, and, you know, before hack and slash was even a term, uh, that's what I was there for. The, you know, the guts, the special effects, the whole thing. Um, but no, not not the uh, sci fi movies. No, I didn't get into, you know, Michael Rennie's big deal and all that. Though I did watch um, I did watch um, Twilight Zone. And uh, later on, uh, Night Gallery and the Night mm-hmm. Stalker. Sure. Um, you know, I, I got, got in. I got into that then, but that was awfully well done, especially mm-hmm. given the time period. Uh, I didn't get into the cheap and sleazy stuff. So we've got a question from the chat. Um, OSR Grimoire is asking if you enjoyed Gladiator, Tim. I enjoyed Gladiator. I, I, okay, I understand what you're saying. What he's asking, I think, Gladiator was grotesquely non-historical. It was a very basically followed Commodus and a bit of the history. That's what movies hang their scripts on now is a little bit of history. I don't go to movies to critique them for accuracy for the period or the weapons and that. I go to movies and go, wow, did the spectacle blow me away? Was I, would, would, was I looking at my watch to see it was going to be over soon? Mm-hmm. Gladiator. Met, it ticked all the boxes. It was grand. It was glorious. That initial fight scene, fighting the barbarians in a forest, just, I mean, in many ways, uh, it was as powerful as the opening of, of uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan, though not as visceral, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Saving Private Ryan, you know, I, I like good war movies. I like Kelly's Heroes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, so, a tank. Yeah, yeah, you know, I... You know, yeah, you know, Donald Sutherland is a hippie in 1944. No, no, the, but I don't care. Um, I note when movies have correct equipment, and yes, that makes them a little better in my mind. Uh, you know, don't tell me that that patent tank is a tiger. Mm-hmm. You know, d- don't 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 tell me that. But that doesn't ruin my you know. Um, seeing Shaw going up the hill, spinning his treads in a bulldog tiger tank did not ruin the scene for me in the Battle of the Bulge. So, Tim, how did you come to help compile the Appendix Endless? That was our first first, uh, common bond. We started in one of the very, very early, in fact, it might have been the very first conversation uh, that we had that I've gone on record as lasting like an hour and a quarter, hour and a half. And we were paying for it then, too. So it was hideously expensive. Anyway, we we started bouncing books off each other. Hey, you read this. Oh, what about that? And we realized that we had a lot of books in common. And that made Gary realize that I was probably coming from a similar place and as he was. Because of those books, because it was out of those books that the the spirit of D and D was conjured, and so um, that was an immediate click. It was an immediate mesh. Wow, we have this in common, and so then it was, oh, hey, did you ever check out this one? And he'd give me one, and I'd give him one. Now, to be fair, he gave me more than I gave him. He'd read more of them than I had, but there were a few I'd read that I turned him on to. 
Right. This was uh, before you even started at TSR. This was the late yeah, night Friday, we were just, Friday just, phone calls. Yeah, these were just the late night. Well, they were actually us. Uh, yeah, um, when did the rates went down at nine o'clock, eight o'clock, eight or nine o'clock on Saturday, and they uh-huh. stayed down until nine o'clock on Sunday, and then it went back up. So if you're calling home to mom, you better be off the phone by nine. <laughs> so yeah, it was during those phone calls because um, we we just. Um, we hit it off and um so and we ended the first one with him saying something like well you know you got any more questions or whatever you know don't hesitate to call and a couple three weeks later i did and they became more frequent and at this point he had still he had just created chainmail D was not yet uh, a thing no at that point. When, well somewhere along the line in there he had just wrapped up writing the rules and then therefore got into publishing them um he was telling me about this this miniatures game that he was this new game form that he was developing. So I heard a lot about it over the phone, mm-hmm. which is what you, which is why I went to the Gen Con in '74 to play it and um, played it twice. And as I've said many times, the rest is history. Right, and this was um, the first the first Gen Con. Well, my first was, uh, I think it was Gen Con 7 in 74. And then I went back in 75 for a much more formal uh, welcome to the team. How soon can you get up here? Because I I was graduating uh, uh, Southern Illinois and um, ready to step into the job. And so I stepped into the job, I think, in the first of September. So we've got a couple more questions from the chat. Uh, Folks are asking about Clark Ashton Smith what you think of Clark Ashton Smith and what you think about why he may or may not have been uh, listed in the appendix. Then Clark Ashton Smith was one of Gary's favorites. I have read a couple though um, on Gary's recommendation. Uh, I got to say though, it was so many years ago that if I, if I, if I saw the title, I can, but they're not any, any that, stand out in my head right away um i have an excuse for that before the lockdown i'm i'm probably a a problem reader in that i read so much okay and i mean i i read at least a novel a week plus i get eight magazines a month i get a paper every morning I, i you know i mean no i get 11 magazines if you count the weekly um, you know, so I'm a, I'm a voracious reader and most of it's residing back there in, uh, uh, deeper memory than Ram. <laughs> and do you feel like Clark Ashton Smith's exclusion from the appendix end was intentional or was more of an oversight? As I recall, and again, I got to beg semi, uh, the ignorance of age and disuse, his writing was somewhat um, ponderous. That's very fair. And um, there were a couple, three others that I I don't know. I would name them if I could remember. There were excluded that Gary and I enjoyed wading through, but we didn't think a lot of other people would. And oh God, if that was the first, if that was the first book they put picked up. Appendix right. N was shot. Right. Do you think um, some of the some of the risque elements? I mean, there's certainly sort of elements. Well, of, uh, there was there was a lot of pure, there was a lot of puritanical 
influence. It, we were scared to death of going crossing over a line. Number one, we were in the Midwest. Right. Okay, which, you know, as everybody knows, is two years behind either coast. Might be longer now, I'm not sure. Um, but um, everything that had, you know, that would be like saying, why didn't we put in uh, the Gore books? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, right. they're loaded with sex stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and you stuff. guys had just gotten burned with Eldritch Wizardry to a certain extent, too, well, right? No, this is before, you know, no, we, we were formulating Appendix N for a long time. It was uh, it was an ongoing, almost like a bulletin board project. In fact, for a while it was. We were putting notes on the bulletin board on on authors and books, and um, it went on over some period before um, it came out. So, oh, what was that? Oh, that must have been my phone. Okay, we'll ignore it. Um, I'm wearing headphones, which I don't normally do when I'm doing my broadcasts, um, so everything's a little distorted. Um, there were other authors that we left off. Um, I'm reading a, an anthology from Britain right now of uh, fantasy uh, short stories that's got a couple of real dogs in there. <laughs> in that they were written, you know, there's one written in 1900. I'm going to go find the book. It's so fascinating. It's very difficult to read, but it's so beautiful when you fall into the pattern of reading when it was written in that style. There are others who just don't read well today. Mm-hmm. So several got left off for that reason. They were ponderous. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't want any, any, any sex being recommended to 12-year-olds. Hey, read these books and have mom who's on the PTA at the Fundamentalist Church. No, we, we dealt with enough of that already. Right. Fair, right. fair. Even trying to avoid it, we still got hit with it. Right. We do have another question in the chat, but before we get to that, there's a question I'd like to ask you because you mentioned that you you were, you were just reading a story, a fantasy story from 1900, and to me, I find it interesting that the Appendix N is so concisely focused on the 20th century. The earliest author's writings that you have on the list is Lord Dunsany. Was that an intentional choice yes. not to go? Yes, because the 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 19th century writing was was difficult, even even in 1975. 19, the the uh, 1890 writing styles were ponderous mm-hmm. uh, for contemporary readers. If you are a reading fa- fan of reading or a fan of that period of time, no. But we were looking to give books that, number one, were easily found. Mm-hmm. There, there's very few books on Appendix N that at the time you couldn't find either at your library or at the used bookstore, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, we wanted them to be um, fun reads, okay? We, we there was There's stuff we could have put on there that weren't necessarily fun reads. All right? We were looking at this as a playing aid, not just to play the game, but to understand the concept of the game. If yeah. you read the Jack Vance books, you know where the magic comes from. You know how it works. Mm-hmm. If you don't read the Jack Vance, as apparently millions haven't, they scream and bitch about it all the time. Well, that was the system that Gary thought he wanted to use. And so there, that is it. Learn the spells, they go away, you got to learn them again. It's Mm -hmm. very gameable. It is. And some choices in in the design of the system were definitely, you know, toward the gameability. 
uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to necessarily uh, reality. <laughs> right. And I've actually noticed, um, again, amongst some of your shows and some of your, your commentaries that you've made in the past, that a lot of game choices as the game evolved were in response to how the game was actually being played or misplayed in some cases. We, we, tried, to, we, we tried to ride herd on the game as it evolved. Um, I, I don't know what that means, right herd. Well, um, we were keeping the, the cows in the herd. Oh, not okay. Um, we were we were genetic. We were biologists pruning off branches that were going in a direction that we didn't want it to go, um, and because we felt it would destroy the game, and we also knew that the game actually wasn't done yet. We we felt you know for a long time we knew the game was still evolving, and. Uh, there was something about spell points. Well, we we cut that one back every time it came up because it completely negated the whole uh, magic system and, and it would have severely skewed it toward the wizards. Hmm. Whereas Gary felt that he had relatively balanced between the three, the three primary, you know, the, the clerics, the fighting men, which is what it was originally called, and the magic user. He tried to balance that so that no one of them would dominate. Because if, for instance, if you made it, if you gave wizards extra hit, spell, uh, hit points, you know, they will dominate the campaign. And um, Gary did not want that. Gary's, in Gary's mind, I, this was a game for individual heroes to step forth and save the world fighting men of Thew and, 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 you know, Conan and, and what have you. Yeah. We, we rode herd. We kept the strays in the herd and, uh, tried to develop the game. I invented the boule eating what it liked to eat to meet an immediate need that was going on in the game, holistic, mm -hmm. the game sure. Dw somehow dwarven ponies and ponies had become the thing. And so dwarven ponies could go underground and they see underground and, you know, <laughs> and so I invented a monster that liked to eat ponies. <laughs> and I got a lot of calls from a lot of, a lot of letters back then from DMs going, Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, just, I just wiped out the breeding herd. you know. Right. <laughs> so um, that was just one thing that from my own personal uh, irk, but we did other things, and we modified certain rules as they codified and solidified into first edition mm -hmm. with those things in mind. Right. So psionics, for example, was a response to some of the monsters that had essentially psionics. Yeah, types, I'm, right? I'm, it's, I'm to blame. Yes. <laughs> I, invented, I invented the original psionic system, and um, then everybody that ever rolled a paradise abused it. <laughs> because nobody paid attention to how incredibly, phenomenally rare even the potential for an inkling of psionic power was. No, nope, everybody had it. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> then they didn't know how to use it. Well, maybe that's because they weren't qualified. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I felt it was only fair that the players had something to do to go after brain moles and mind flares. Because when the Mind Flayer came out in Strategic Review, I got on the phone with Gary. I said, you just made an unbeatable monster. What are you doing? I was outraged that he had to put something in there that was so overpowered for what it was. Okay, I'm not talking about a dragon or an elephant or something. That has a logical 
uh, basis in being big and bad and tough. And, you know, humans should never be able to beat dragons with anything other than trickery or deceit. But putting in a mind flare who just wandered down the hall and basically take over everybody in the party with no defense, I felt that was heinous. Yeah. So he saw my point. Gary was, uh, in those early days, Gary was uh, very open-minded to what could become flaws in the system. And if uh, if he if you, he, he made a good argument, he'd take it in a minute. So from the chat, we've got another question. Uh, this one is from Tim L. White. And he says, Dungeon Crawl Classics is known for mixing a lot of pulp and appendix end sources together and embracing fresh remixes. How do you feel about that compared to more historical or pure fantasy RPGs? I think Dungeon Crawl Classics is a brilliant design. I think it's a great game to play. I think Mutant Crawl Classics is even more fun than Dungeon (laughs) Crawl Classics. What initially attracted me to Dungeon Crawl Classics was the concept of the funnel. Mm -hmm. Hi, roll up 12 characters in advance and hope that you have enough to make it to the adventure. I love that idea. Because it goes back to the old, oh, shit, he's dead. Okay, wait a minute. Hey, roll a bunch of dice, and around the corner, this guy. <laughs> it, it, it's all about the, the novelty and the fun and the silliness. And um, I, I, I embrace that, particularly if it brings people into, um, their, if that's their first RPG, great. And if that becomes their only RPG, that's okay, too. I don't care if they're having fun because it's the social interaction of RPGs that are their greatest selling point. Right. Um, awkward people learn to read other people playing RPGs. Um, shy people learn to speak out playing. I mean, I've, I've heard dozens and dozens and uh, I've had dozens and many, many dozens of people over the last uh, 14, 15 years, tell me what it did for them in those areas. And um, great. Yeah. Wonder- wonderful. You know, I'm, I couldn't be happier. Um, right. Something that we uh, spent all that, that love and energy and time on is still doing good for people. That seems to be also tied in with an evolution of your uh, convention games, Tim, because it seems like your uh, Wheel of Blame games is about getting people constantly involved whereas maybe the games that you were running earlier on were more traditional and you had tpks and stuff like and now you're just constantly keep, keeping well, people well it's true when i came back out into the convention server circuit in 06 um for several years i maintained about an 85 percent tpk rate uh, i was just i played the game the way we used to play you do something stupid you get the results and people weren't ready for it but yet you know i only ever had one player out of all those tpks bitch about it afterwards everybody else had fun and you're right we were stupid you know whatever but then i got cancer and um my viewpoint changed let's have more fun and my viewpoint had started to change when i started putting something into my convention games called the universal antidote and if there were eight people in the party they had four of them and basically it put four heads back on four necks or to one torso on one trunk. You know, it was it was a device that, OK, you died real early. You don't have to get up and leave. 
And so I started interjecting more silliness in that regard because, okay, it's stupid. But I actually had something like that in my original campaign, um, not knowing what it would later become. So uh, I started mellowing a little, and then I got cancer, and I went through chemo and um, changed a lot of things besides losing a, a, a ridiculous amount of weight that I should have lost years ago. Um, I also decided I was going to have more fun. I'm going to play for laughs instead of deaths. So I came up with this idea. And the first time I tested it, it was on a local convention, a bunch of strangers. And we kept interrupting. It was an ill-planned gaming room because they had all, a huge area with tons of tables, everybody talking at once. One of those. And we kept interrupting everybody because my entire table would burst out into laughter. <laughs> and we got a lot of getting serious looks, you know, and stuff like that. No, not at my table. It's not. And I've since run it at least. Well, I ran it twice more recently for Texas. I've run it probably 20 times now and only had one group come out, not intact. And, and, um, we it's there for fun and this last group that i ran on sunday for texas uh one of the guys started complaining about aren't we going to do any hacking and slashing so i said sure and i attacked him with a boule that bit him into five parts before it was all over and he he agreed that he'd had all the hacking and slashing he needed uh thank you very much can i have another and so he got an antidote and we picked, we pieced him back together and we went on and he didn't, you know, because I told him it's old school, Be careful what you say you're going to do, because I might decide you did <laughs> and don't wish for anything out loud. There you go. He wanted more hacking and slashing. So I immediately, uh, and the 10 year old, the group, the 10 year old, in the group jumped onto the back of the boule while he was biting this guy into pieces and killed him by ramming an arrow into the soft spot. There you go. I mean, a 10 year old, <laughs> a 10 year old. I mean, come on. We had, we had a great time. They were in Ireland at the time playing. I had two boys and their mom in Ireland playing in the game. It was great. That's great. It is. It is. I had a guy in South America playing in one of my games uh, for uh, Gary Khan. Didn't know it until afterward. Yeah, he was in Argentina playing. Zoom is a wonderful thing. No, oh, no doubt. So earlier in the conversation, you were saying that, you know, out of these books came the spirit of D&D. And I'm curious, when you look at D&D 5th edition and D&D as it is today, how much of that original spirit do you st still see in there? Or do you feel like it's, it's veered quite a ways from that original spirit? No, because there's too many damn rules. Ours was a much simpler game more inconsistent i'll grant you playing my game go playing somebody else's game they weren't terribly different but yeah they weren't exactly the same and mm -hmm. um i still don't follow the rules exactly but if there's some kind of well i know i used to say okay um this is how magic works on my world back when i was doing that about how some areas are magic rich and some magic poor so spells work differently sometimes and i would have warned them in advance so they could figure out how, how what kind of an area they were in before they did anything silly um a lot of the um do, did you do you watch or have you watched many of the old rascals or no, uh, our gang or some of the old Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland films when they were kid actors. The, the Let's go make a show. 
Okay, right, they had right. this they had this idealistic, naive, we'll all get together in the barn and we'll put on a show and you know and and we had a lot of that. Let's go let's go put on a show, let's go have a game. And and we weren't too sure how it was going to go when we got there. It's so cut and dried now. Yeah. Right. There are too many player character classes way too many oh my god how many types of crusaders do you need <laughs> there's good ones and there's bad ones it doesn't matter who they crusaded for <laughs> yeah. right that that gives me endless amusement the ridiculous proliferation of player ca- classes ridiculous yeah. And we've got another question from the chat, and this one is from OSR Grimoire again. He was the one who asked us about Gladiator earlier. He was wondering about psionics. He was asking, which books from the Appendix N did you read that inspired you along those lines? And he asked if, like, Hyro's Journey or the Mind Parasites were inspirations or anything else? My sole inspiration for psionics is Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Gary, and that... I, I'm, I'm pretty safe to say that that was both Gary's and my favorite Marvel comic. If you look in there, the silver thread, all yep. that stuff is yeah, straight out of Doctor Strange. Right. Now, yeah. I don't know where Doctor Strange is out of, but I do know that that was the two, that we that was the comic book that if we were comic geeks, we could have sat down and talked about issue by issue by issue. Right. So, so my the, uh, it's all mystical mental powers, you know, uber brains inside normal skulls, uh, power of the mind. It, this was a time of Timothy Leary and LSD and expanding the mind, exploring new powers of the mind. Uh, I mean, that was all the, the straight, serious topic as well as, you know, know, flowers and flower children and that. So these are all part and parcel of our environment as we were doing this. These were all influences on us, the current thoughts about what could the brain do? You know, eventually everybody could be a real Yuri Geller and move stuff with their brain. And so that's where we, that's where we went. That's where I went. (laughs) But in psionics, Gary, and I did, I did consult with him um, more heavily on that than any other uh, project that I did um, because we, 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 we actually did a lot of buffing and refining of that system that so many people say is incomprehensible. Well, Mm -hmm. sorry, sorry. (laughs) We thought it should be complicated because we didn't think too many people were going to have it, but there was about one chance. And again, that goes back to NPCs. If you knew you had to go fly a, uh, fight a mind flare, then go find a, sci- a, a psionicist. Right, a Hire him in the journey, and he's ah. your protection. But nobody uses NPCs. You know, they want to be the NPC. Mm-hmm. And that's like a big change in the game, right? Now, people definitely don't have hirelings as much anywhere. At, uh, would you say, Jeff? That's pretty fair, right? No hiring. Oh, I, I agreed. Yeah. yeah. Well, in yeah, and the pendulum has swung back. Yeah. Uh, there was a time, and Jolly Blackburn's Knights at the Dinner Table, who I, who I frequently tout because I love it, um, he spoofed that with his guys, with their their pack horse, their pack horse holder, their torchbearer. Their, their, you know, they had all these hirelings, and they 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 lost them so frequently 
that pretty soon they couldn't hire him anymore because the word got around and nobody came back to collect. They had a pack ape who hunted them down uh, 20 or 30 uh, issues later who hunted them down for something they'd done to him. And now there's no hirelings. Well, we hired specialists. Um, before there were thieves, we would hire a thief before it was a class. It was just a, a, an amorphous idea. If you had locks to pick, you went and you hired a thief. If you had a special thing you needed to do, if, if you were all a bunch of low-level clerics and fighters, which is the way a lot of groups started out, um, if you needed a, a way, you know, you went and hired a hedge wizard and he got first dibs on anything magical found and he took a he got, you know, three shares to your one or whatever, but you paid the price to get that specialist. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, everybody is a specialist. <laughs> right, right. Um, that's the, you know, the, the sages and the various uh, other, if you want to learn something, you go to the sage, right? Yeah, you don't play a sage. Right. You go to the sage and you study. You don't play one. Well, we had, a, I had an interesting talk about bards the other day. And um, it was, on well. I'll just say it's on my last video about bards and the way they started out and what they've become now. It's, it's, <laughs> it's silly. I'll just say that. Well, yeah. And in, in the fifth, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the way they work mechanically in fifth edition, but they have an at will power called vicious mockery. So they can just insult you and it does damage. Well, now <laughs> I kind of like that idea. And I bet Gary would like the concept also. Because bards, bards were introduced by a friend of mine who was in my original campaign at Southern Illinois of playtesters, Doug Swagman. And they had really stiff uh, stat requirements. I mean, you had to be an outstanding specimen to even qualify. And we, we, were, we were looking at the bards when we decided to publish it. We were looking at the bards of old who could compel a group of rowdy people to be still and listen to them who had this the 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 celtic bards who had a power of song and instrument to have their way that we were looking at those romantic bards also they were a little bit of the scamp you know the, the troubadours you know that's what we pattern we thought you know the original and that's what doug thought the original bard would be because the third stage is uh, the clerical, and it's druidic. And so you know, the druids have the great uh, bard tradition. And so historically, we were being accurate. You got to learn to scuffle. Right. Got to learn to pick locks. Now you can go to the priests and learn how to sing. Right. It became a whole different thing. Right. Um, and in a way, the bard class encapsulates the entire hero's journey, right? From being sort of a yeah. very physical character to a character of knowledge. And, and he's and, the only you know. one that was encouraged to change classes. You know, change horses in midstream, so to speak. He was the only one that was encouraged to do that. Are you familiar with Dan the Bard? Dan Marcotte, who does the singing? In the, oh, oh Dan the, the Bard, Dan Marcotte, has a, a song called Bard Camp. <laughs> loosely based on what happens at band camp, except it's bard camp. And one of the verses is about the time the second edition bard picked a fight with the first edition bard and learned that, what? First edition bards get to be fighters? It's hilarious. It, it, it's just, it, it's really funny shift of the way the bard changed from this rough and tumble, I can take care of myself to a certain extent, 
to this fancy pants running around with a lute and feathers in his hat <laughs> and no skills whatsoever as far as keeping alive. There you go. Now, looking at, um, I don't know how often um, you, you've taken a look at the list of the appendix and since you originally wrote it and how familiar you are, if you remember everybody who's on it or not. But I'm curious. Well, hold if on. Are... I got the three books right here. Which one is it again? It's a DMG. <laughs> DMG. Yeah, it's a DMG. And I was going to ask you if there um, are any authors you would omit today or if there are any additional authors you would add to the list if you were going to go back in time and do another oh. round of edits on it. Oh, <laughs> add to the list. I, 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 sh I would have had to prepare for that one in advance. There's a oh, no lot worries. of really good stuff I've read in the last 10 years. Um, um, oh, just a minute. I'll think of him. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I would add definitely, I would add dwarves and orcs. Those two series are oh, yeah, sure. outstanding and orcs. It will change your, Orcs are no longer bags of EPs running around waiting for you to let them out. Right. I think that's okay. Mary they Gentle. become. A, I, right. I'm not saying they become a playable race, but they become an understandable race. Right. Um, I mean, I'll think of his name probably when this is over. <laughs> Wrote a series about a dungeon that becomes self-aware. Hmm. Uh, Hans, Hans Kammer, Hans Cummings, Hans Cummings. Okay. He's got um, he's got five books out. Three of them are about the dungeon that becomes aware. He uses very non-traditional characters, and it's it's outstanding reading um, from a quote what we would classify monsters' point of view. You know, because everything. I wish we'd picked a different word than monster because monster had its own its own connotations before we we struck on it, and I wish we hadn't monster being just anything you run across in the, and it might not it might be a friendly monster uh right. appendix n okay who would i leave off well not enough people know who frederick brown is and that's a shame um august derleth not enough people know his name and it's it's i i unfortunately as an ex-teacher i look at this stuff as how hard is it to read yeah um I don't see anything other than a couple of those. And you actually had the uh, good fortune as the editor of Dragon to actually work with some of those writers, such as uh, Gardner Fox and Fritz Leiber, right? Yeah. And yeah. and um, I published uh, a L. Sprague de Camp story. I republished an L. Sprague de Camp story that hadn't, hadn't been published in like 40 years or something. So um, with him, it was just uh, correspondence, but... With Fritz, uh, we had him as a special guest one year at the con, and he's he's just a, a really really nice gentleman, who I really struck a friendship with was his buddy Harry Fisher, mm -hmm. and when you got to know them and heard them tell the stories of how Fritz was Fafford and 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 Harry was the Mauser, and how they used to run around in capes, and, I mean they were larping. <laughs> in the 30s all right <laughs> oh long time before larping and how they became the inspiration of fritz's stories and that right and, and and harry he was just oh he was a card i just loved him to death right um, and you printed one of harry's pieces right the uh, the the youth of the mouser i think was when uh, yeah. uh well we did a we did uh the fincer family mm -hmm. was uh harry fisher's and um i i thought that was a, a really brilliant concept uh, it, it wasn't as uh, well received as I had hoped, but mm -hmm. I thought it would just be so neat that you could have a machine 
that would you could take a a rock put it in that machine activate the machine and it would that rock would tell you everything that had ever happened to it everything that had gone on around it everything it had been a part of before it became a rock you know like if it was a piece of a wall a thousand years right. just right. such a such a neat concept right you know it was no no masterly power right except knowledge and I thought, wow, this this will make them think. Well, unfortunately, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a couple of interesting rocks. There's with that Stanley Weinbaum story I think we read with the, and then there was the, um, and then there was the evil rock in the Roger Zelazny story in the Jack of Shadows. That yes, yes, the pink rock, the pink rock. So. so, how was working with Gardner? Oh, Gardner Fox was a he was a real gentleman. He was fun to work with. Call me Gar. <laughs> First time I said Mr. Fox, call me Gar. I said, okay, call me Tim, you know, (laughs) okay, we're good. You know, he was just a, he he was, he was a little, um, little bemused by the reception he got at the convention because he was in appendix N. you know, I'd already published a story. So the dragon people, they knew who he was. He was a little bemused by this whole market that he'd not heard much about until then. And how he had a whole new bunch of fans that were eager to meet him and ask for his autograph and stuff. And he signed a lot of Dragon magazines that had his thing in it, I think. Um, and uh, he was he was just kind of amused and and cool, you know, just looking around. Hey, this is pretty cool. I don't understand it, but I can dig it. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I respected him for that. He didn't come, you know, he didn't come in and try to be anything he wasn't. Um, I don't need these now, and they flare. I know. Um, he was just a, a really, really nice guy. Um, and when you think of what he meant to the comics industry, sure, with the Flash, yes. and you know, yeah, Flash, whoa, Flash, you know, yeah. one of the enduring superheroes. Um, and he was he helped uh, start the Human Torch, and uh, um, Green Arrow. And Green, when I found out that he had worked on Green Arrow, I nearly wet myself. Because <laughs> that was probably one of my... Fa- I was not a Superman fan. I was not a Batman fan. I would read him once in a while. But, oh, my God, give me uh, Green Arrow or Green Lantern. I was yeah. all over it. And when I found out he'd written Green Arrow, we had a 20-minute discussion on the arrows that they wouldn't let Green Arrow have and the things that they would do. <laughs> And I and I would go, yeah. And if he'd had an arrow, oh yeah. But they wouldn't let me have that one either. You know, it was really neat discussion <laughs> about the arrows the Green Arrow didn't have, and what that's we would have liked to give him. You know, yeah, that's a that's a once in a lifetime unexpected treat, right? <laughs> you, you don't wake up one day and say, yeah, I'd really like to meet a famous comic author, author and to have a bullshit session on what he could have done differently in his strip. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You, 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 don't, you don't think about that. You don't think about that in 1975 when you're starting this little weird fantasy company and paying yourself nothing and working in a basement. You don't think that's going to happen. You, right. you might hope right. in some vague way that something like that mm-hmm. might happen. Sure. Right. But, but no, it's not yeah. on your to-do list. <laughs> right. But conversely, you're sort of in his position now to a certain extent uh, with people mm-hmm. asking you, which is, I guess, the wheel turns. It's, it's fascinating. Well, it is. And it's it's a little uncomfortable. Um, I got out of gaming for over 20 years. And, uh, I, you know, people go, well, what'd you do? Well, I had a life. I raised my kids. 
I was a soccer coach and a soccer referee and a high school soccer announcer. And I spent 20 years working with a, a couple of guys and we built this organization to take people with disabilities fishing once a year. And, you know, I did normal stuff. And um, when I came back at Gen Con in 2006, Frank Manser uh, conned me into going, you know, convinced me. And uh, that's what con's short for. He convinced me to go. <laughs> well, it is actually that in confidence. Um, he convinced me to go. And um, if you know Frank, you know he can be a little wordy on occasion. And so I'm standing off stage. He goes out. Yeah, clap, clap, clap. They all love Frank. And he goes, all right. And I got, an, I got a, a special guest auctioneer here with me tonight. He goes on and on and on. And I'm just getting more and more embarrassed. And it um, finally calls me up on stage, and the entire auditorium gave me a standing ovation. To be very honest, I had no idea anybody would remember who the hell I was. I'd been out of the field for 20 years. In two or three, I had gotten back into computer strategic type gaming with a game called... Um, um, <laughs> Now I'm blanking. Age of Wonders. Mm. And I'd even done some scenario writing and some um, some background writing for some of the characters and you know and some of that. So I, I realized the creative juices were still there. They just hadn't been tapped. But I was really stunned that all these people that I had no idea who the hell I might have known six people in that crowd. They all stood up. And I turned to Frank and I said, and this is just because I'm not dead? Because <laughs> I hadn't done anything in 20 years. And when I dropped out, all the rumors were hilarious about where I'd gone and what had happened. I was a hitman for the CIA, and I'd I'd sniped uh, drug lords in South America. And <laughs> That's not true. No, I, if, was, if I said it was, I'd have to kill you. Um, <laughs> and another interesting spin on that was I'd been so remorseful that I had joined a monastery way up on the border with Canada and taken a vow of silence. <laughs> now, anybody, right. know, anybody that knows me knows the only way I'd take a vow of silence is if you cut my tongue out and stapled my lips together, because I'd still be going, ooh. You know? <laughs> and so, yeah, this is, this is the background I've got to him with all this stuff going on, you know. And so it was like, wow. And, yeah, people um, – I, I spend most of my conventions saying, call me Tim, call me Tim. I'm not Mr. Mr. Retired when I quit teaching, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so um, I'm grateful that people uh, know who I am, whether or not they appreciate what I did. I'm not going to ask them <laughs> just the fact that somebody, you know, that's, that's true immortality. As long as someone speaks your name, yeah. you're not dead. Um, sure. I, I donated several thousand micro armor tanks and stuff to a museum in California, uh, a Pat, the Pat museum down in Southern California in the desert. And they're going to be building these dioramas with them. And on the, on the entrance to that little room wing thing, there'll be a plaque that says that was all donated by me. That's immortality. There you go. Yeah. That's great. That's immortality. That's something I did that helps education. That's immortality. Now, the fact that people, you know, 30 years from now, I'll, I'll just be a name on Google. That's okay. But 30 years from now, when they go in that museum, they'll look up there and wonder, wow, I wonder who Tim Cash was. You know, <laughs> and awesome. there I'm still I'm still alive. 
Right. I would love to ask you about Andre Norton. Now, I know that she had yeah, done we some published, gaming. Yeah, we published the story of Andre's. Quiet. We published the introduction to Quag Keep. Yeah. yeah. So did you get to interact with her much? No, that really came through Gary. Um, I think she reached out to Gary or someone put her and Gary together. And Gary said, hey, how would you like something from Andre Norton? And I said, well, I don't know. What's it about? Well, it's kind of D&D-ish. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, I, I, I saw the name, you know, and I, I admit it. That's a name. Name sell. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and I liked a lot of her stuff. You know, I'd read a lot of her stuff. Uh, in fact, she's probably on the list, isn't she? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so she's one of three female authors. It's Andre Norton, Lee Brackett, and um, and Margaret Sinclair. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret right. Sinclair. Well, right. and in defense, there weren't too many ladies writing heroic fantasy. Right. Maybe C.L. Moore would be the only one I could think of off the top of my head. We might have been a. Uh, an omission, but she was, uh, but by your criteria, Tim, she's actually a little bit difficult to read. I think CL Moore yeah. and like Ursula K. Le Guin was on the, I guess the, um, the basic and the basic set also had its own kind of appendix and list. And that actually included quite a few female authors, including right. like Ursula K. Le Guin. And right. That was 1981, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So Tim, by- you're already gone from TSR at that point, right? 1981. Is that oh, right? Yeah. I was or, gone. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, doing Adventure Gaming Magazine then. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about uh, Jack Vance? I know that Gary had some correspondence with him, right? When they oh, were yeah, gaming. he and Jack. Well, he actually said, he wrote a letter to Jack and said he loved his magic system so much, he was he wanted to just lift it right out. And Jack said, sure. And apparently Jack told his agent and his publishers that he did that. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't The Dying Earth, but if you had read The Dying Earth, and then you saw D&D you go, oh, yeah, Dying Earth. And right, so right. it was probably the greatest nearly verbatim lift in the system was the way yeah. the magic worked. That was his and the Ion Stones and all that stuff. And Jack gave him carte blanche to use any of that he wanted. So, you know, here we have a game that's very clearly inspired by things like, you know, The Dying Earth and um, Edgar Rice Burroughs and um, Moorcock and all these other things. Robert E. Howard. But, yeah, all of them. Yeah, exactly. But the thing that people tend to look at the most is Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings. And a lot of people think that D&D is, 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 is supposed to be played as kind of the Lord of the Rings, the role-playing game. Uh, how, how do you feel about about uh, <laughs> that particular take on D&D versus the more heroic fantasy? If Gary was it? sitting on my shoulder right now, all you would hear is spluttering. He's <laughs> trying to swallow his tongue from shouting. Sure. Um, I, I, and I know that he was very bothered by by the, the, the Tolkienism of it. Did Gary did not like the idea that when you said, Somebody thought, Tolkien, when you said yeah. dwarf, they thought Gimli, you know, because um, Tolkien both helped and hurt us. It, uh, it created a um, almost a trope, uh, I guess, if I'm using that right. Anyway, um, you know, it, so many people coming in saw it that way. And that's not the way dwarves were envisioned. Dwarves were more the... Uh, uh, Western European, Western, Northwestern European, uh, not really very nice fellows at all. 
and um, not not prone to deal with humans. Um, and elves were, you know, kind of flighty and again, not prone to do, you know, where Tolkien's got them all having a picnic together and everything. And so Gary didn't like that. No, uh, we as a company did not like the fact that so many people could not see beyond the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit. Yeah. OK, they couldn't see beyond it. Uh, that was it. Um, it's like um, if Bakshi's cartoons were Tolkien's words come to life, that's the only way they could see a wizard is that little weird guy on that ostrich thing. Or right. you, know, you, you see what I'm saying? If, right. if that if, if it worked that way, that was so stamped on them, you know, and I could have killed um, 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 Sal- yeah, was it Salvatore? Who did Drixt? Yeah, R.A. Salvatore. Yeah, yeah now, he, Bob's a really nice guy. I met him one year at Tracy Hickman's Killer Breakfast at Gen Con, sat next to him, and we just sat and bullshit the whole time until we died. And he's a really nice guy, and we still occasionally correspond through Facebook. But I told him when I met him, I said, oh, I'd just like to kill you right now, right? Choke you out. <laughs> he goes, why? He says, because you're a damn two-handed act, you're a two-handed fighter. Bull-wielding. And he goes, yeah, well, I've heard that before. <laughs> and so, okay, we were friends from then on, you know, it was fine. It was fine. Because, yeah, oh, God, I hate Drixt or Drixit or whatever, however yeah. the hell you pronounce that Drix- white-haired Drix- freak's Drix- name, <laughs> you know. And, and um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he he writes good stuff. Um, other than that, two-handed fighting stuff. There's one I might put on the list. There's several contemporaries that I might might well put on the list. Um, th- they write stuff that captures your imagination and, in a mental cell- sense, makes you breathe a little faster and a little deeper. Yeah, I guess that's one thing I, I didn't think to ask earlier. Is are there any kind of officially branded Dungeons and Dragons literature that you actually really enjoyed reading, or not so much? I've not read any of it. You've not I, read any of it. I none of read, the Dragonlance novels. No, nothing. No, none no. of Tracy or Margaret. I know both Tracy and Margaret. And count them. I friend, haven't read any of it either. But I've not read any of it. No, Ravenscroft. Oh, have you? Stuff. No, no. The only one I've read is Quite Keep. Uh, yeah, back in the day. I've never now, read any of them. Yeah, I got uh, an advanced copy of that one, really. <laughs> uh, I wish I'd, I wish I kept track of it. I loaned it to somebody and it never came back. Imagine uh, that. There you go. Uh, so I guess there's a lot of kind of um, interesting inflection points where D&D could have evolved in different ways. Or and, Well, that's that writing herd thing. Right. We were very sensitive to those. Right. Very sensitive. Ooh, not that way. <laughs> come back, come back, come back. Um, but for example, I mean, it might not have even been D and D, but before D and D even came out, I know that there was that uh, Warriors of um, Warriors of Barsoom, Warriors of Mars uh, rule set that Gary had worked on for a while, yes. and they got yeah. a cease and desist from uh, the Burroughs estate. Yeah, right. Yeah. But imagine yeah. if they, for example, had not gotten a cease and desist, would there have been? Would D and D have been the Burroughs, uh, you know, Barsoom game, and would it have had no. the legs that have? No, now? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, Gary's, I, I believe trying to remember what conversations we had because it was a somewhat sore subject um gary saw that as a challenge so okay how would i set up a war game a miniatures game on 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 mars and uh, as i recall that was pretty much a miniatures not much a role-playing game right um burroughs was certainly one of gary's earliest on the list and mine too but no i don't i don't i don't think so it would have been too limited because gary's D dealt with human beings primarily 
Right. The other, the other uh, fey races, the dwarves, the elves, etc., they were a supporting cast. You would have had to deal with monsters. Right. The Green Martians. Yeah. Well, again, Gary, I don't believe Gary's head was ready to um, stat out one of those forearm guys with the tusks. Right. All right. The, thark, the Tharks. Yeah, Tharks. Okay, thank you. Gary was humanocentric. Very, very, very humanocentric. And um, for that reason, I don't think we'd have gone that direction. It was just a place to put miniatures. And there were some there were some miniatures out and available. I don't know if they were licensed or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a, it, I don't mean this in a denigrating sense, but it was a product to put in the catalog. Mm-hmm. And the bigger your catalog, the more inclined people are to buy from you. Right, right. And they'll see other stuff. They look, they're flipping through the catalog and they'll see all the other stuff. Yeah, they may like, come for one and buy the, buy the other one also. Mm-hmm. But they, if they come for one and that's all you got, then you are definitely a one-trick pony. Mm-hmm. And back then, there were literally scores of one-trick ponies. And actually, that point is actually pretty interesting because, as you mentioned, I think most, if not all, the protagonists in the appendix and books are, in fact, human. They're not uh, dwarves or elves or anything right. other than well, Hobbit. Nobody's, nobody was writing that stuff then. Right. Uh, like I said, I would insist on um, Heights' dwarves and uh, Nichols' orcs. I would insist on those being in there mm-hmm. simply because they give you a whole different perspective that isn't Tolkien right. on the dwarves. And the orcs makes them into individuals whose personalities are worth noting. Uh, I'm not going to say. Well, actually, yeah, you do become sympathetic because there's other things that want to kill the orcs that you're reading about. So mm-hmm. they, they do become a sympathetic character in that regard. Um, and I think that's uh, I think that's very good. And I think that's in the non-chemical meaning of mind expanding. Mm-hmm. I think anybody, you know, it makes you think outside whatever your box is. You should always find the edge of your box and knock one of the edges over and go see what's on the other side. Right, right. And I think um, maybe to the extent, I mean, I don't also like the game that has where there's only like one human protagonist and there's like everybody plays every one of the other races. But yeah. I can sort of see still in the sort of nature of D&D, a lot of people who play D&D are at some point in their lives outsiders. And so um, playing one of these races is to sort of like stamp that I can be a cool outsider. Well, and um, you do see some examples of that in the appendix. And it's yeah. like when you open up three hearts and three lions here, you've got like a paladin, a swan, may and a dwarf traveling together. Right, right. Or you open up like, you know, warrior of Earth's end and you've got like a, you know, the bazonga bird and you're you're like purple skinned wizard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you do have some of that, but right. like it is true that usually the, the literature tends to be very humanocentric. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, it was very male centric because there wasn't yeah. a lot. There wasn't in our defense. If there'd been more female-centric stuff out there, we'd have adopted it. We've tried to be inclusive from the beginning. You know, right. and we, I remember your, your your advertising in the day; it was still very uh, inclusive. You know, as mm-hmm. as far as it went, we tried. Yeah, but you are still getting a lot of sort of new players to your game, right? So you mentioned I hope two, so. two kids, two kids from Ireland and their mother. Yeah, and they played play. twice that weekend. They, uh-huh. Them and mom, they were they were hilarious. Um, mm-hmm. They were wonderful. They were the the enthusiasm. Um, they don't. They don't even recognize the existence of a box. Mm-hmm. Um, the one wanted to burn everything the first time. He wanted to set it on fire, <laughs> and so when they came back and played a few days later with me, they had a new technique. They had they had brought their 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 spikes and their hammers, and they 
trying to break everything. They want to bust everything up with their spikes and their hammers. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you can kind of admire that enthusiasm. Well, you wouldn't let us burn everything. How about can we chip it to death? You know? And right. they came to the table with another idea. And uh, it was it was great fun having right. somebody, you know, think outside the box like that. Um, sometimes I make a point when I'm running games at the cons. I, I'm very good at hearing what people are muttering around the table. And I make a point of if I've noticed somebody has, has said a couple of wise things and been talked over, what did you say again? And I'll point at them and I'll bring them into the game. Mm-hmm. And I've watched occasions where I was running long games where those people ended up being come a, the kind of the de facto leaders because they had two or three really good ideas that worked. Well, everybody follows everybody follows a winner. That's human nature. Right. right. It's just part of probably maybe something that came out of your experience teaching, like seeing the shy kid in the class and sort of saying, bringing them out yes. a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Um, I actually used role playing in in my uh, classroom uh, one semester when I was uh, working. I was in the final semester and getting my master's. And I used a, a modified form of role playing in my classroom, and it was a huge success. I've been thinking all this time about uh, marketing it through an uh, uh, educational publisher or something like that. But I divided my kids up, and we were studying the uh, end of imperialism, the beginning of the uh, First World War. So I divided my classroom up into four nationalities, and uh, I gave them each a little note when they came in. Now, I made them write me a, who are you? And then I gave them a little note as the war went on and based on their who, who they were on something that happened to them. And, and oh, um, this, this happened. You know, they, the only thing that couldn't happen to them was they couldn't die because mm-hmm. they had to write an essay at the end. And, but it really brought home a very boring period because teaching that period to ninth graders is very tough. They just don't care because everything's in black and white. You know, and, and it doesn't funny grip mustaches, them. right? Yeah, it doesn't grip them. And but uh, I, I had a couple of kids that saved themselves from failing mm-hmm. because they got it so viscerally. They got it. Um, so I, I think that it's a possibility to use it in, depending upon the the class, three or four different periods of history, where you can do that and make it personal. Have their brother get killed. Have their dad get drafted, um, have their, their, their father's factory taken over by the government and changed to something else. Take the girls and make them go work in the armaments factories. Mm-hmm. You know, just I did nothing that wouldn't have happened during the course of the war because they all started out as uh, a year or two older than they actually were. I made them all 17, 18. So that they all be 18, 19, 20 by the end of the period so i could draft them if i had to mm-hmm. and in the very end of the thing i did draft three guys they got draft notices and i actually saw kids go pale you know because oh god and it, they didn't realize it but it was ending but um you can use role playing in a classroom uh, in a history classroom i can show you how to do it right so that was an exercise in empathy and immersion amongst other things well i'm making it personal now it's not a bunch of people back at the turn of the 20th century now it was their fictional family. It was, the, you know, it was their fictional town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think in education, when you're trying to teach empathy, you have to have something to be, uh, to be an empathy with. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you see that, you know, I had a lot of the essays said, you know, 
they, they had no idea how how it affected people at home. You know, they mm-hmm. knew lots of people had died. They knew lots of people had been uh, wounded and maimed, but they had no idea of what it, a world war meant before they in, immersed in that project. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if we had more people realize what would happen to the people at home, not just the guys and girls on the front line shooting at each other, we'd have fewer wars. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't trying to save the world. I think this is a good way to start wrapping this up. Now, if people want to start looking for you online or want to know about the curmudgeon in the cellar or any of this, how can folks find you? Uh, YouTube, curmudgeon in the cellar. And um, I've done... Oh, 130 Lord. some odd. 202. I think. Two, I think I just did 130th, 129th. And there's some on there that aren't numbered because they were like specials. And we did... a. Jim Walker and I did one on the road one time on the way to Gary Con. That was real funny. And I did a bunch of stuff uh, during the shelter in place. I wrote read stories for kids and talked about that. But that's all on YouTube. Tim Kask, um, you K A S K. If you don't know already, um, you'll find it there. Um, that's that's my main thing. I I used to go to four cons a year, <laughs> but uh, that won't be happening again until at least uh, next next spring probably. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I hate, I still like being able to play online and especially, you know, you can talk and uh, like on Zoom, I can see the faces of everybody because I like to be able to read the faces of the people I'm playing with. And it's better than nothing. Exactly. But, online is better than nothing, but it's not as good as at the table. table. Well, I, I got, a, I got a, a, a tip for you. North Texas RPG Con is working on evolving into a regular online presence a branded ah. presence. And I have told them, yeah, I'll run a game or two a month for them ah, dur- cool. under that format. They're still working out the format. Uh, I know Jim Wampler's probably going to be running a game or two. Uh, if you get into one of his games, you probably get involved in one of his play tests, which, which are always wild. And woolly. Sure. <laughs> I, I edit his work. So I, I know, I know what you have to expect. <laughs> but I got checked into playing one of his celebrity games one year and Oh Lord, did he have fun? He turned me into a giant spider with 80, 87 eyes on my back. Uh, <laughs> it was great fun. Of course that was mutant crawl classics. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, that's what you'll be playing there. Yeah. And there's others that I know are doing it. Um, I'll continue doing my, th- I'm trying to get my theater of the mind games going. Um, I'm going to set up a new, um, email address, especially for that. And, uh, I'd like to do that a couple times a month, run my wheel of blame online. I've done it several times now. I did it with, uh, just did it with Texas. I did it with Gary Khan. I did it with, uh, Cobalt Con. Yeah, I think I, yeah, it was Cobalt Con. I, I ran a game for. So I know it works. And you know, it's just a lot of honor involved. Everybody right. rolls their own dice. Mm-hmm. I can't tell if they're cheating. <laughs> well, you're, if, only cheating your, you're only cheating yourself in the long that's run. That's it. Right? I've, I've, I've exactly. never understood the people that cheated on dice rolls. Yeah, yeah it sucks to die. Yeah. But hey, if you're dead, you're dead. And it's what yeah. happens. Maybe if you're lucky, they'll haul your corpse back before it's too ripe and you'll get resurrected. And then but, you know. another, another good moment for the story that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, the worst part. All right, quick before we wrap. The worst part of working at TSR was manning the booth in the early days because we had to listen to every single last best or greatest adventure tale that everybody came up to the booth to tell us <laughs> before they bought 
the book. <laughs> so we had to sit there and go, oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's pretty. Um, do you want the book? Do you want the book? And then <laughs> next guy came up, we had to listen to his story. Oh, my God. I heard, oh, my God. Every year. Oh, and then Lord. the Lich King, and we had our sword. And uh-huh. and I'm uh-huh. sitting there, cool. when I'm listening at all, going, how did that even happen? You know, whatever. <laughs> all I'm happy is that they're coming up there ready to spend their money with TSR. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> crass and commercial that we were back then. We were just trying to make a living. All right. Totally. And Hoy, how can folks find out more about us? All right. If you want to give us some feedback, you can send us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on social media on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n or check out our Facebook group. Um, we're also, I believe, on MeWe and some of the other platforms. And Jeff, what about our Patreon? Yeah, you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show your support there. We would like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons, um, patrons. I don't know why I said it that way. Uh, to a few of our patrons, uh, Eric Hicks, Ethan Schoonover, Noah Green, Bruce Erickson, Peter Martino, Andy Action, Christopher Murray, Andrew Satan, uh, Satan and Angus, thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate that. And Tim, again, thank you so much for being a, on the show. Yes. I have a question. Okay. Yours says Jeff. His Hoy's name. Yeah. Mine says Decisive Artist. Yeah. If you don't type in your name when you first join uh, Squadcast, it kind of just names you something random. Oh, it just puts, it just puts like an, an adjective and a noun. <laughs> I, I find that ironic because I can't drive, draw flies on a hot day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if it hadn't been for the yeah. lines and graph paper, I couldn't have drawn dungeons. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> right, so Tim, thank you for your time. It's been really appreciated. Okay. I enjoyed right. it. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>